We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Jordan Armanese is booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's the sun. The fiery round ball of fun. Here's Scott Thompson. Fiery round ball of fun. There you go. I think it scared a lot of people. I thought, is that eclipse happening? Maybe it's, that was the longest lunar eclipse I've ever been through, man. Um, no, it, it's, it's, it's a beauty day, and it's uh, going to continue for the next little while. And the, <laughs> the temperatures uh, actually get pretty warm uh, through the rest of the week. By Friday, we're talking like 11 degrees, double digits in the hammer. Uh, anyway, so uh, enjoy, I guess, the uh, winter that wasn't. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, lots going on. Nothing really uh, overly uh, over the top, but certainly uh, many stories progressing. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, sorry, Appeals Court has uh, said that Donald Trump uh, does not have immunity in around the case of uh, uh, January 6th and such. Uh, Canadians' interest in the Ukraine war, is it waning? Polling suggests perhaps it is. Prince Harry in London uh, to visit with uh, King Charles, who obviously was diagnosed with cancer and undergoing treatment uh, the other day. That was mentioned. Toby Keith, country star, uh, passes away at the age of uh, 62 as well. And U.S. Um, Secretary of State Blinken pushes for a truce in the is- Israeli-Hamas war, trying really hard to get something uh, moving forward there. Uh, Ontario and B.C., and I guess this isn't some, I guess there's no surprise here. Uh, and because I'm sure you've heard a lot of it anecdotally, but lots of residents of Ontario and British Columbia, the biggest provinces, uh, are moving to smaller provinces, the Maritimes, places like that, uh, and, um, and, and going for more bang for the buck and, um, and just a, a different lifestyle. So we'll talk about that, uh, over the course of the afternoon. We got a jam packed show for you. And, you know, here's, we've talked about this and, and, and not only, Speaking of stuff that you've heard anecdotally uh, about car theft and such or along the greater Toronto-Hamilton corridor, it's just gone through the roof and right the way across the country. It's It seems that we're a target and they're kind of laughing at us here. And we, we brought up a week or two ago uh, a story out of southern Italy where police there uncovered containers housing 250 automobiles that were from uh, Canada that were specifically from the Montreal, uh, sorry, Quebec and Ontario area. So uh, this has become a national crisis by far. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when we're talking about police budgets and we're talking about defunding and what have you, that the federal government is, has last week given Ontario $121 million to extra to fight um, guns, gangs, and in car theft, which is odd because many are complaining about the liberal government's catch and release program and the handgun ban, which, you know, we all went after the handgun owners uh, when, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the guns used in Canada are coming across the U.S. border. Uh, 
So, and gun crime up 9% since 2021. So the soft on crime clearly doesn't, uh, uh, the approach doesn't seem to be working, whether it's, uh, well, whatever type of crime, including car theft. And man, what an incredible story. And you got to feel for, uh, I believe it was in Dundas, where th- th- this family, in, you know, they get a home invasion, people looking for their cars. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable that not only people are brazen enough to do this in today's world because you know what's the penalty for car theft well we're gonna have a lawyer on to talk about that a little later on this hour what happens if you steal a car you get caught first time second time third time when are you out how much time are you actually doing polyev calling on for three years uh, you know on a third time offense that doesn't seem unreasonable do you mean we're not at that now? So, again, how many uh, horses have to leave the barn before we close the doors on a myriad of issues? Whether it's population explosion, which was supposed to drive the economy and instead has fueled a housing crisis and instead has fueled a health care crisis, has resulted in a cap on international students now putting more pressure on universities and colleges. So it's one, you know, late to the day, late to the date, late to the date every single time. And, you know, whether it's an election interference, whether it's a freedom convoy, wait until it becomes a flashpoint and then commit in and try to save the day and that's what we seem to have here is just a government that has no ability to manage anything whether it's in you know to do with the economy whether it's to do with housing whether it's to do with health care and you know all, all that's uh, provincial stuff well yeah so is daycare pharma care and dental care but that doesn't stop the government from sticking its nose in that so again i, I think we've got a uh, uh a government that's trying to be too much to everything and is being absolutely nothing to anyone uh, as a result of this therefore creating the divisiveness that we're seeing in the country and again just an inability to manage the day-to-day issues that government is required to do, no matter the department. All right, we got that coming up. Also, uh, this is a neat uh, thing that is coming out of Brock University, and I'm sure others are doing it, home sharing options available to students of Brock University, people that have extra rooms, uh, maybe people who are older and such, and, and wouldn't mind having you know somebody uh, rent a room. This is another option that is available out there, and Brock's uh, trying to see if they can take advantage of that. And of course, um, you know, provide much needed student housing. We'll talk about that as well. We talked about this for a while, and again, it just keeps gro- just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. You know, we heard just the other day that uh, gun crimes up like nine percent, and the sad part is, it's twelve to seventeen year olds that are seeing the biggest increase. Uh, this after bans and handgun bans, but are we really doing enough to solve the problem at borders, which is where eighty to ninety percent of that uh, of that issue comes from, where the guns come from? Same thing. Can it be said for auto theft? Interesting story. A week or so ago, uh, police and southern italy uncover containers with 250 canadian cars that had been stolen here and were on their way to the middle east stopping over uh in southern italy so uh, how has this gotten out of hand and how has it got to the point where it's now a national crisis the insurance bureau of canada has said so more than 200 vehicles stolen on an average day across the country to talk more elliot silverstein director of government relations caa insurance in here now elliot Thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you for having me. 
Um, how did we get here? I mean, you know, I mean, there was always you, you assume car theft is always there, but it just seems we're just the, the numbers are through the stratosphere now. It really has changed. I mean, we've seen for years those crimes of opportunity, somebody trying to get access to a vehicle and off they go. But now it's getting much more sophisticated. And part of it is leveraging some of the technologies in our car and some of the technologies in society and getting access to more cars, getting them faster and getting them overseas. And that's part of the challenge is that we've seen this evolution and we have this gap in vehicle standards and technology that we really need to fix because we all have these, these tools in our car, remote keyless entries, push button starts, and so forth. And, and again, those types of technologies create that vulnerability because the standards are just not up to where we should be in 2024. We've had this debate many times on the show, Elliot. So, uh, hey, guess what? Do you want to uh, have your car insured? Use this. It's called a key. Is this about technology or is it security, lack of? It's everything all combined. This is, this is from, from beginning to end. Everybody plays a role in this. So we've seen some of the convenience tools out there. We know that people need to keep their cars secure. All those things are important. And then at the end of the day, we also need to make sure that border services is cracking down on this so that if your car is stolen, there's greater measures taken so that it doesn't leave the country. I think each part is equally important, but without one of them being involved, we're not Mm. going to resolve this fully. Uh, we talked about the story last week of something like 250 cars showing up in containers in southern Italy. What can we do to stop them from even leaving the continent? So there's things that consumers can do today, and there's things that, that border security can do as well. So for the consumer, you know, look at the habits of what you have. So are you locking your doors? 20% don't lock their doors. That's an immediate change. If you have a garage Keep your car in a garage as much as possible. Don't keep your keys at the front of the house. From a border services issue, it's about the investment. It's about making sure that things are being checked before they leave the country. Because if we can mitigate that, that's huge. But again, you know, there, there's so many parts to this. And that's why the vehicle standards component is so important. Because if we made things tougher, if we had greater security like immobilizers in our cars, it would actually make it harder for thieves to get access to our cars. Uh, is it a matter of time? And we've talked about this again before that, um, you know, the, the manufacturers have more of a responsibility here to improve the security and the technology, but they're always sort of one step behind what the bad people are. Uh, so will you ever catch up to that? What is the responsibility of the manufacturers here? Everybody plays a role. And I think that they have to uh, be at the table. Again, the challenge is, is that the minimum standards in the country are fairly archaic at this point. I mean, when we, the last time they were updated, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have tablets. We really need to bring that into line because if the standards were updated, then they would require compliance by the manufacturer. So really, it's one step at a time. But again, if, if we can make it make those, those technologies stronger, it makes it harder to steal vehicles, and then you'd have a lesser number of vehicles that are at risk. Because right now, we've got a number of years of makes and models that are really attractive, but if we can start, you know, turning that and, and bringing that number down, we all win in the end. How how do we compare to other countries with this sort of thing, Elliot? I mean, it's hard to compare apples to oranges, but the technology, the same technology exists worldwide. And yet Canada seems to be focused out as, you know, a free-for-all. The hotspot right now is Canada. 
that's not to say it hasn't happened in other parts of the world and, and it hasn't uh, uh, been addressed in other parts of the world as well. What we have to look at here domestically is why is, it, why is it happening, where is it happening, and what can we do to stop it? So right now, organized forces have really come together to say, let's get it out of southern Ontario, let's get it out of Quebec, and, and, and bring those cars to other parts of the world. If we can come together collectively, and that's why we want to see the summit on Thursday as, as another point in the process, then we can try to turn that page. This did not happen overnight. It's not going to be resolved overnight, but we need to make that continuous change so that everybody can feel comfortable their cars are safe. Don't you think the suggestions that you're going to hear at a summit, Elliot, and, you know, give me your opinion, it will, it's stuff we already know we're just not doing. You know, everybody has to play that role. And I think that part of what we've been trying to really highlight is that, for, you know, even the insurance industry, they deal with catastrophic incidents all the time, a flood, a tornado, hurricane, and so forth. Those have certain time periods. You deal with the issue, and then it's resolved, and people get their repairs done. What we're seeing with vehicle theft is that it's all it's a year-round catastrophic incident, but worse off, there's no end in sight. And there's only so much that consumers can pay and that insurance companies can pay to address these issues. We really need to bring it forward. And, and I'd like to think that that message is being heard clearly now by the federal government. We know that the provincial government has invested significantly into law enforcement. We know that things are moving, but we need to keep it consistent and we need everybody at the table. And this is the first time that we're going to have everybody together. Uh, that is sort of my next question. We only got a few seconds left. Are you confident that this will lead to something, that it has peaked and we can start to see the, the crest of this hill um, now that it has certainly become a national issue? Certainly hopeful that it's going to be. I think there's a lot of groups that have really come forward thus far to, to be proactive, but we need everybody together. This is going to require a collective solution, and we need everybody to, to commit to that. And that's where it stands. And if it doesn't happen, then it's going to take us longer. Elliot Silverstein with us, Director of Government Relations, CAA Insurance. Insurance Bureau of Canada says auto theft has, is now a national crisis. More than 200 vehicles stolen on the average day, and we all need to chip in and do our part from one end of the industry to the other. Uh, Elliot, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right. We certainly know the situation in and around housing, the crisis we're uh, all dealing with, whether you're renting, uh, whether you're purchasing, whether, you know, first, second, whatever. Uh, it, it certainly has become incredibly uh, challenging as there is a limited supply and a great demand. And people are always looking for new ideas and things. And we're starting to see a lot of that innovative thinking as we try to get through all of this. And a new home sharing option is available to Brock students through Spaces Shared. And it's a, it's a great idea to talk more about all of this. Kristen Smith, manager of on, uh, sorry, off campus and community experience, Brock University and here now. Kristen, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Kristen. So give us an overview. What is, what is this about? How does it work? Certainly. Um, Brock University is collaborating with Spaces Shared. Um, it's a platform for home sharing. Um, so it's matching students with community hosts who are opening their home to students. So it's a way for us to unlock um, spare bedrooms um, that are available in our community for students to be able to live in. Um, so students are learning from their hosts. They might be able to help with some tasks around the home as well. So allowing seniors to age in place uh, in their homes. So it's a win-win situation both for students and our community um, both in Niagara and around the province. It really sounds like a great idea. How did this come about? Um, the organization itself, um, Spaces Shared, has been um, 
partnering with a number of institutions across the region um, or across the country, actually, um, mat- doing home sharing, mat- making matches uh, for people in response to the housing crisis. Um, and they reached out to Brock asking if we want to partner and certainly we wanted to do our part for affordable housing and freeing up um, single family homes for families to live. And this would be a great solution for students. Um, as well to be able to to find homes in an alternative to renting a property. And is this a new direction for Brock? It's one of our options. So, of course, we will continue to host uh, rental properties on our website mm-hmm. for, for landlords to post when they're not living in the home. But this is the first time that we're promoting home sharing in this way. So this is new for us. And we just launched yesterday. So excited to uh, welcome some hosts to... Um, promote their properties for students. Uh, this seems like uh, every situation could be different, but there must be a size that fits everyone in some way. Exactly. So I'm sure reasons for people to open up their homes might be empty nesters who are looking um, to, to learn from the next generation of mm-hmm. students or missing their own kids, <laughs> for example, um, to some mentoring that could happen in terms of a student in a particular field of study living with someone who's a retired um, person in that profession as well. So, um, you know, some unique opportunities that could happen in the home. Um, Also, I could see that it's appealing for international students to gain experience uh, as well uh, in a Canadian home as well. Uh, Obviously just launched, but what's early reaction like? Uh, We've had um, great response so far from um, folks in the community that have heard, heard about the program including folks on campus as well. So our Masters of Gerontology program reached out and said that they're delighted about this partnership. Um, We do have two different information sessions for hosts coming up as well, um, that they are welcome to come in um, and just have their questions asked. We know it it can be challenging or maybe even scary to open up your home um, to someone that you don't know. And so we have information sessions that are coming. Hopefully we'll see a good response there. And just think, even helping them with technology. I mean, I use the kids for that every day. Uh, <laughs> right there. Hey, can you fix this for me? Uh, so uh, some some concern might be security, vetting, that sort of thing. How does that work? Yeah, Spaces Shared has given a lot of thought um, to that process. And so there is um, a full online process where people verify their identity. Police checks are completed. Um, they're verifying their address, do a walkthrough with the home. Then there's an online chat feature for um, hosts and students to connect right through the platform. So people don't need to have other apps and things like that. They can connect and see if it is a fit for them. Um, and then they can move forward in making an agreement um, together in terms of being very clear about what those expectations are right from right. You know, how frequently you tidy up after dinner, you know, right away or kind of wait until later in the evening, those types of things, just making a good match. Uh, And you can see how uh, there would certainly be interest from the community, people that have spare rooms and such. What about student uptake? What would how would the what student would this fit best? Is that a door or or, or really can we can we pin it down to that? Um, I think there's a number of students that would be interested um, in this type of experience. Um, There's also options for students to have reduced rent for doing some um, tasks around the house as well. So it might be snow shoveling or raking leaves in the fall, some seasonal tasks that students might be assisting with. And so we all know the cost uh, of living right now and how high it is. So this gives another 
financial, it's not just a financial benefit, but that is one of the factors as well. And what about food or eating? I guess that depends on the individual agreement. That's correct. So for the most part, they would be more like roommates. So they would negotiate that individually. And so if anybody wants to get involved in the community, what do they do if, if they've got a room or space and, 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 and want to investigate? What do, what do people in the community do? Yeah, so they can go directly to the website, spacesshared.ca. And the website has, full, has all of the steps laid out uh, for hosts in terms of getting involved. Um, there also is a telephone and email um, support that's available. So they actually have social workers that are supporting um, matches and people that are looking to match um, as well. And as I mentioned, we also have two information sessions um, that are happening so folks can come in person, um, both to Brock University as well as in Seoul in the community. Um, and those can be found on Eventbrite. And so those are coming up in February and in March. Uh, this is pretty outside the box thinking, although seems very, you know, it just seems like common sense. Um, what are the challenges with this? Uh, even liabilities, people, oh, I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, w- was it much of a challenge to get this going? Uh, no, it's there, it's a multi-pronged approach to housing. And uh, we certainly know that our students are looking for affordable housing. And this is one of the ways that we can do that. Um, and we felt very confident with the thought that uh, Spaces Shared has put in to all those elements that you mentioned around safety and matches and things like that and ongoing support. Um, and so we can see the, the benefits for both the community and for our students. Uh, great idea, Kristen. Good luck with all of this. Excellent. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate your time today. Kristen Smith, manager of off-campus and community experience, Brock University. And this just makes so much uh, common sense. If you're looking to downsize or your student want to do something different, um, home sharing and uh, through uh, spaces shared, hooking up students with those in the community. You can see the benefits on both sides of this. Uh, Another great idea to try to fill uh, the void that we have in housing. Kristen Smith from Brock University with us. Lots of chatter about uh, car theft of late. Uh, you know, just talking to CA Insurance about the Insurance Bureau of Canada saying this is now a national crisis, 200 stolen per day. Uh, the Fed's giving $121 million to the province of Ontario just last week to fight uh, guns, gangs, and auto theft. Um, so uh, at the end of the day, this is obviously going to take a multi-pronged approach whether it's at the borders, whether it, whatever it is. Um, but many have talked about penalties for, and we were thinking, what is the penalty for stealing a car? What happens if you get caught stealing a car first time, second time, third time? Let's bring Andrew Virgueli with us, or on, a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, Andrew, let's keep it as simple as we can. Uh, you get caught, you've stolen a car, it's your first offense uh, compared to second, third. What are you looking at? So it depends on which way the Crown proceeds. They can go the less serious way, which is summary conviction. Um, and you might get a, a term of jail, not more than two years less a day. Uh, and if they went by the more serious way, which is indictment, your maximum sentence is 10 years. Realistically, on a first offense, you wouldn't get anywhere near the maximums. Nobody really does in criminal law, in Canadian criminal law, uh, for the most part. 
uh, you would definitely, I expect, be looking at jail sentence. Uh, uh, and then uh, if you got caught a second time, obviously the fact that you have a first conviction makes it aggravating uh, and you would get uh, almost invariably a higher sentence. And then on a third uh, uh, time around, if you're convicted a third time for stealing a car, there's actually a mandatory minimum of six months, uh, which is very different than most other theft cases that are uh, in the criminal code. Uh, so there on that third time, you you would absolutely be going to jail for at least six months and probably more. Uh, many have talked about whether the penalties are severe enough, uh, using the term catch and release. What is your opinion here? Is it penalties that need to be changed? There's nothing that I see about the criminal code provisions with respect to this offense that need to be changed. Um, and I say that for a few reasons. First of all, uh, you have a mandatory minimum on a third offense, and, and, and mandatory minimums are very rare in the criminal code. Uh, so you have that signal already there from Parliament that somebody has to go to jail uh, for a third offense on this. Second, uh, the, the maximums for both summary conviction uh, and for uh, uh, going by indictment are, are high, and they, they allow for judges to have a lot of flexibility with respect to sentencing. So you, you already have in there the flexibility to increase sentencing ranges for these sorts of offenses uh, if the judge wants to do that. Talk about the different direction of uh, summary versus indictment. How do you decide which way to go there? So it's the Crown who makes that decision. Uh, uh, the prosecutor will look at the case uh, and decide uh, based on a number of factors uh, uh, which way they wish to proceed on a case. Um, oftentimes with theft cases, you'll end up in the summary conviction stream, uh, not invariably, but oftentimes. I think with car cases, uh, now prosecutors are, are feeling more pressure to go by indictment. Um, and uh, uh, because of the, the sort of the increased attention uh, that has come about and the increased incidents that have been reported, you'll see prosecutors deciding to go on the more serious stream to open up that wider and broader range of punishments. But it's a decision that belongs to the Crown and their decision alone, and it's not reviewable. Uh, obviously, we're just talking about car theft, Andrew, but in many cases, situations, this could involve other offenses, whether it's assaults or violence. How does that change the picture? So it absolutely does. I mean, when we talk, the section we've been talking about right now is for sort of the quintessential, like middle of the night, a car is parked on the side of the road, an individual, Jimmy's opened the locks and steals it. The, the reality is, if a person is in the car and they are robbed of the car with a firearm or with a weapon or whatever, they're not going to be prosecuted by the section we're talking about. They're going to be prosecuted under a robbery section or a robbery with a firearm section, which inevitably carries far stricter sentences uh, uh, and, and, and has far more serious effect uh, on the accused person in terms of what they're going to be facing if they're found guilty. So uh, realistically, this section that we've been talking about and that there have been sound bites about in the media is for really the least serious form of car theft. For more serious forms where an individual is actually threatened or hurt or taken out of a car, we're in different, far more serious sections of the criminal code as it is. What about the phrase catch and release? We hear anecdotally or, or from law enforcement that they'll arrest somebody for car theft and then they're out on the street in, in no time. What can you tell us there? 
bail is a constitutional right. And uh, the car theft provisions that we've been talking about are still property crimes. Um, and, and if we're not talking about a robbery, if we're not talking about somebody hurt, if we're just talking about a car that's taken off the streets, um, the fact that there has been an increased amount of them will be a factor for a justice to consider. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, a good strong majority of people on bail in this country don't, don't reoffend. Uh, and there's nothing about this offense that requires bail to be removed from the situation uh, full force, especially for people who don't have a criminal record where it's their first alleged offense. So the catch and release is, is a popular saying, but it ignores the realities of, of the fact that, that bail is vitally important for people. The fact that we have uh, really overcrowded jails and 80 percent of the people in our jails right now are people who haven't been found guilty of an offense but rather are people who are awaiting trial. So uh, the, the bail issue is really one that doesn't, in my view, address really the root causes and, and, and address how to make these incidents decrease. Andrew Andrew Fergiuelli is with us, lecturer with the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto, and explaining car theft to us. Andrew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Canada's fertility rate has hit an all-time low. It's uh, at about 1.3%. And in 1959, 1959, when it peaked, it was at 3.94%. And then after 1959, as according to Stats Canada and Canada, the population started to decline in 1960 going down. And then by 1965, it was 3.1%. And many people say the baby boomer starts at 1965. It doesn't. The population peaked, according to Stats Canada, as far as uh, our fertility rate in 1959 and then had dropped almost a half a point by the time we get to 1965, which is when some say... Uh, baby boomers uh, are up until 1965. And, of course, being in, uh, born in 1962, I am fighting that tooth and nail. Let's bring in Kate Choi, Director of the Center for Research on Social Inequality with Western University, and talk about Canada's fertility rate. She is here now. Kate, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Good afternoon. It's a so, pleasure to be on your show. Kate, thanks so much. And I hate to go personal on this, but, you know, didn't we peak in 1959? Isn't that when the baby boom theoretically ended? So uh, in 1959, that was a period where there was a high fertility. Over the past uh, six decades, fertility has been uh, steadily decreasing. And mm-hmm. today, uh, the average women um, has roughly uh, 1.33 uh, children at the population level. So theoretically, it's been declining since 1959. It's been slowly uh decreasing over time. And women are not only having fewer children, but they're also delaying uh, their uh, transition into parenthood. This has been a trend that's been going on for a while, Kate, but how did the global pandemic change this? Did you see any change as a result of that? 
So early in the pandemic, around 2020, what ended up happening was that people felt a lot of uncertainty with respect to the economy uh, due to lockdowns, or they felt a lot of uncertainty with respect to their health, as there was a lot of uh, mortality and conversations about mortality. So what ended up happening was that women who are in their reproductive ages, as well as couples who uh delayed their fertility uh, slightly. But once the economy opened and people uh, got a little bit more used to the idea of living uh, through a pandemic, it rebounded. So you actually see a rise in a short-term rise in fertility. And then afterwards, uh, between 2021 and 2022, you see a 7.4% drop in fertility. Uh, before the pandemic, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Kate, but um, it, uh, career, education, uh, all things that are delaying uh, having a family. And then I would guess in a post-pandemic world, affordability has become a major issue. Yes. Uh, so for for long periods over the last uh, six decades or so, uh, we have made the transition from a sole earner in, uh, economy to a dual earner uh, household economy where both partners have to earn a living. Um, economy has and labor market has become a lot more competitive, which meant that uh, young adults have to stay in school for longer periods of time. That has resulted in delayed fertility and uh, lower fertility. And um, over time, uh, what we are also seeing is that housing affordability, as well as other increases in cost of living, is in fact contributing to a decline in fertility rates. So how does this impact society over time? I mean, we've certainly known that that we've had a declining population. We depend a lot on immigration to keep those numbers up. How does this impact society over the long haul? So for a population to stay stable, um, on average, uh, it needs uh, the number of Children that a an average woman needs to have at the population level is 2.1. Otherwise, population starts decreasing in the absence of mass migration. So mm-hmm. Canada right now has a total fertility rate of 1.33, which is well below the replacement rate. And what that means is that Canada ends up having an aging society. And uh, so higher shares of individuals are older that in turn uh, translates to other things like it uh, It can potentially threaten the solvency of social security programs. It, it can also contribute to the rise in overall social health care costs. Uh, it can also contribute to a shortage of caregivers to an aging population and so forth. Can populations, societies, nations, countries reverse this? Is that possible? Can we get back to 2% again or 2.1? So um, on average, what we are seeing uh, is that once it starts decreasing, it's really hard to reverse uh, the fertility trends. Mm -hmm. Um, So, But there are things that can be done to uh, slow down the decrease in fertility. Uh, For example, um, one thing that we do know is that in places where housing prices are high or places where rental costs are uh, have increased dramatically, fertility tends to be lower. So by uh, implementing policies and programs that makes housing more affordable and Mm. provides affordable housing to young couples and so forth, uh, we can 
decrease the rate in which uh, the fertility rates are decreasing. Um, providing childcare is uh, affordable and safe and high quality childcare is another example that can potentially slow down the rate of decrease in fertility. Providing parental leave would be another example of policy that can be implemented to slow down the pace of decrease in fertility. Kate Choi with us, director of the Center for Research on Social Inequality with Western University, talking about Canada's fertility rate at an all-time low. Fascinating discussion, Kate. Thanks for the time. Be well. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you very much. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been hearing as there are more and more conflicts, more and more distractions in the world that uh, interest and and whether it's aid or, or, or just interest, politics, policy, and our thoughts towards Ukraine have been waning in everything else that has been going on. What does this mean for Ukraine moving forward? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is here now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. So why is interest or is it waning in the Ukraine war? Is it just simply because there's so much other stuff going on now? No, this is primarily caught up in American politics. Uh, Donald Trump has let it be known that he does not want the package which his own people have been negotiating for a very long time, that is Republicans in the Senate and the House, have been negotiating a very comprehensive package, involves a lot of uh, concessions that the uh, Democrats don't want to make over over border issues. But uh, they said, okay, we'll do that. Actually, they'd like to get that out of the way. We thought a deal was in place, and it would look like a, uh, a really big compromise on all sides. Nobody would be happy on the fringes, but a lot of centrists. And there's a lot of bipartisan support in Congress, American Congress for Ukraine. But it's all very much in jeopardy now. And the bottom line on this, Scott, is that we are facing potentially an existential crisis for Ukraine. Does this all revolve around the politics of uh, the United States, which we know right now it's tit for tat down there if you want money for uh, for Ukraine, then you got to pro- provide money for the border issues, what have you. Um, but, but does this all revolve around what the U.S. decides to do? Very largely. Uh, unpack that a little bit. The, um, there is war fatigue. There is a lot of concern that this war has now gone on for two years. Attention has been diverted to the Middle East. Domestic issues take over. And uh, President Zelensky has been campaigning vigorously, in, a, in effect, to say, hey, remember, uh, we are fighting this war for you. This would change the geopolitics of Europe and the world. Mm. If Ukraine is eliminated by Russia, then, you know, this is this is going to change. This is your war. We're fighting it on your behalf. Yeah. And they point out that not a single American or Western uh, troop is on the ground. There's no boots on the ground. They will do the fighting. Give us the material. We'll carry on. Now that is very much in jeopardy. So the second part of that is, Yes, there's some war fatigue, but primarily this is now Donald Trump and his march to the White House. He does not want what the package called for, which the Republicans demanded. We won't give any money for Ukraine or for Israel or for uh, Taiwan if you don't do something serious about the border. Uh, The Democrats have put forward what Republicans are saying is the most significant uh, response to the border and immigration issue 
in decades, they've gotten a lot of what they would like. They've never have gotten it before. They couldn't get it normally. They got it in this, but Donald Trump then said, nope, I don't want this to happen. Uh, I want to keep the immigration issue alive for my campaign. I want to campaign on open borders. Uh, and we know that he has no love lost for Ukraine in any event. Uh, and if he does get elected, just you know, one year from now, on January 20th, and the day later, all aid for Ukraine would likely be stopped if Donald Trump comes in. Right now, it's very much uh, under threat. There's, there's stuff in the pipeline. Material is flowing over time to Ukraine, but it's going to diminish over time. Uh, the EU uh, just stepped up and said, okay, we'll provide $60 billion. That's the amount in this aid package, but that won't continue indefinitely. And of course, if Donald Trump is elected, uh, both NATO and the EU are likely also to uh, uh, come under benign neglect or even uh, a hostile attack. Has this conflict got to the point where it's at, it's at the point of no return? It is stalled. It's not advancing either way. Yeah, that depends on, you know, if, if, if the material that Ukraine has been asking for comes in, that includes air cover, the F-16s, and there's a lot of training going on. And right now, there's pilots being trained, although no planes have yet been provided, but some are promised. The war could change uh, in Ukraine's favor if they had the kind of support that they have been asking for. They have been making great progress in terms of bringing Crimea into play, operating deep inside Russia repeatedly. Uh, the, the battle line is in the Donbass is more or less frozen. But Russia is moving very hard on that. They're pushing hard. And if Ukraine doesn't get what it needs, they could have a breakthrough there, which would break the back of the Ukrainian um, opposition to them, and the war would change in, the, in Putin's favor. So basically, uh, this is all working for Mr. Putin. It's working against global interest, and the state of play right now does not look good. If uh, When will the F-16s be ready, and how much does that change the conversation? But would change it considerably. Uh, the timetable for delivery is a little uh, shrouded in mystery. Uh, the, um, as I say, the pilots are being trained, but various countries are committing a number of F-16s, but they've not yet arrived, and it's probably many months before they're actually put to use by that time. If other aid, like the one we're talking about now, is cut off, if the U.S. cuts off aid, then it's going to be very, very serious. Other, others will, uh, domestic pressures will build in other countries as well. It's, it's really, as I say, this is an existential crisis for Ukraine. And we, what we if, just have to start to realize that. What if more hostility breaks out in the world? I mean, obviously, um, uh, U.S. Secretary, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken is, is pushing for a truce, uh, with the Israeli Hamas war. If, if, if we start to see reductions, changes in there, does that change the conversation? Well, quite clearly, both attention and resources have been shifted. Uh, this works to Mr. Putin's advantage to have everybody looking someplace else mm -hmm. so they can continue to send rockets and missiles and drones attacking civilian targets all across Ukraine. Uh, and if that keeps up, uh, and if more resources keep going someplace else, that's all to Mr. Putin's advantage. All he has to do is wait till Mr. Trump is elected and uh, interest wanes. Obviously, if... Uh, Things are tied together. If, if America, keeping in mind that Mr. Biden is trying to continue to provide support to Ukraine, six, this package that he's proposing 
uh, has 60 billion for Ukraine. It has 14 for Israel and I think five for uh, basically for the Indo-Pacific for Taiwan. But uh, yes, if if the war shifts in some fashion in the Middle East, that will have profound effects. Essentially, I've got three theaters of geopolitics right now. Two of them are actively in play. The uh, Russians want to push the West out and they want to occupy Ukraine, make it go away, move into the heart of Europe, changing the geopolitics of that theater. And the uh, Iranians are trying to push the Americans totally out of uh, that theater of operation, and slowly they've been making progress on that. Now they're coming into uh, focus finally as, hey, they're behind an awful lot of what we're talking about there. But that theater, is, that, the geopolitics in that theater is very much in play, and we sooner or later are going to have to pay attention once again to the third theater, uh, that is China and East Asia. How is this playing in Canada? Is is attention towards Ukraine waning here? I mean, you talked about the politics of the U.S. We're seeing it here with one party saying the other one's not supporting Ukraine and, and what have you. How do Canadians feel? I think Canada, well, we, we have an indicator of that. Canada's foreign minister has just once again, Madame Jolie, has gone to Kiev unexpectedly unannounced. And as very publicly, she's saying we're raising the whole issue of kidnapping of children. Russia not only wants to eliminate Ukraine, it wants to eliminate the memory of Ukraine. Mm. And they're brainwashing these kids. And, you know, that's a war crime. And he's under indictment for that. But Canada is also simultaneously quietly saying we're creating a free trade pact with you. We are also talking about some kind of a defense or security treaty that's going more slowly. But uh, there's a lot of support for institutionalizing support for Ukraine by a number of countries. We are one of those. I think we are one of the more steadfast countries in terms of support for Ukraine. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, Ukraine, and waning interest in the war as it's almost three years now, is it not, Elliot? Two, yeah. Two years, sorry, two years. Coming up, It's coming up to two years now. Uh, all right, Elliot Tepper with us. Thank you so much, Elliot. Much appreciated. Be well. Well, thank you. Same to you, Scott. The deal to prop up the Liberals will be off if Ottawa doesn't meet the farmer care deadline, so says NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. That and other politics of the day coming up. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data here now. Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. If you don't buy the, me that anniversary present, it's over between us two. I want you to know. <laughs> All right. So uh, I mentioned we've had Jugmeet Singh. He comes on the show often, so I, I really appreciate that, although we don't necessarily agree on all of things. But I remember telling you, pressuring him, like, enough of this. Don't you want to be prime minister? And what you said, yes, I want to be prime minister. Um, and, and this is obviously, though, a great big lever for him. How does he... How does he play this, uh, get his pharmacare, and yet still end up with some sort of political career when it's all over? Yeah, it's a tough one, right? Um, when there was deal-making like this before, it was also done with a very weak liberal government. I'm talking about the period when Mr. Layton, the late Jack Layton, was extracting things from Paul Martin. And then, of course, as you well know, that was during the time of Stephen Harper, the liberal opposition fell to bits and Jack Layton became the opposition leader, won the biggest victory the, the NDP had had at that point and set themselves up for at least a run at government. Um, but I'm not sure the circumstances are precise for the entirety of the comparison. But at some point, Mr. Singh has to 
at least pretend that he's not the weak sister in this relationship and is simply being used by the Liberals uh, to hold on to power as they try and figure out a way back uh, to try and win whenever the election comes. And he, you know, uh, I, I don't know that he's really done a great job of demarcating himself from the Liberals at this point. Polls don't suggest that's the case because they are still a little lower than the Liberals in national polls. Uh, will the NDP gain from this? And, and what is it that they'll gain? And I remember him saying to me, well, you know, Canada will get pharmacare. That's great. But the NDP will just get shown the door. So is he just doing this all for the betterment of the country? What does at what point is there payback for the NDP? Well, I think he wants to show Canadians, including liberals who may be dissatisfied with Justin Trudeau, that the, you know, the NDP can get things done. Um, but like you said, uh, as you uh, proposed to him, you can get more things done if you're elected as the uh, as the prime minister, as opposed to the, you know, the weaker partner in in the coalition. So uh, I guess he's counting on demonstrating that he's won some things and that those things are valuable to Canadians and Canadians should reward him because he's more uh, able than Justin Trudeau, whose party's in free fall to get, uh, to get outcomes. But it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's not a simple argument, as that took me about a minute to make for you. Um, yeah, uh, many have said, including me many times, perhaps I should go with that and leave it. Um, this guy, this prime minister has taken the once great left of center liberal party and taken it to the extreme left. After eight years of left and lefter, uh, and then the last portion of it with an NDP uh, liberal deal, are, are Canadians going to want more left after the prime minister has taken the center left party to the extreme left? We're so left, Scott, have we gone right? That's what might be happening there. Well, somebody uh, so said it. Left- somebody said somebody said this to me. If you're in the center, you look to the extreme right. We're so far left. <laughs> Well, they may not be wrong. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think it's going to come down to when we go to the polls, how are people feeling about their own self-worth and what they can afford and not afford? I mean, that has been the theme that has worked well, well excuse me, for Polyev and sucked the oxygen, oxygen, out of, oxygen out of the room for Trudeau. So who knows where this goes, Scott? A couple of situations, major situations, the government's done an about face on. um, And it seems the the prime minister is having some difficulty managing a few files. But for example, um, let's talk about uh, population and uh, growing the economy. Now, all of a sudden, we find out it is fueled. Uh, more housing crisis and more health care crisis. So, and it's led to a cap on international students. So there's sort of a flip-flop on a policy. And uh, as well, $121 million for guns and gangs and such. Um, and, and as auto theft goes through the roof, does this show that the policies they've had on these two situations just don't seem to be working and now they're correcting? I don't know if it shows that, but it shows they haven't had a consistency of policy application, which is bad as not having a policy that works, right? Um, we should have been managing over the time of this prime minister and even going back to Stephen Harper, a sensible 10-year immigration plan, not one that's driven by whatever the political mood of the day is. So they're, they certainly have been in power for eight years. They have to answer about their vacillations in immigration and align with all of that 
uh, you know, the housing problem didn't just happen yesterday either. These things mm-hmm. take decades to happen. So, um, uh, whether they made are making the right choices now or just simply haven't been consistent in the way they've applied policy, that's on them. Uh, and they are, are, are feeling the pain of that right now. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Always fun, Tim. Thanks for the time. Be well. Get me that anniversary gift now, Scott, or we're broken up, okay? All right. It's in the mail, baby. It's in the mail. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This is why I hate social media, and I know I'm going to sound like an old fart here, but I can think of a false story that came up uh, regarding uh, hockey player Connor Bernard and a teammate and his mother that took off on social media, which was absolutely false, and yet it ran rampant for like five, three or four or five days before finally people listen and, oh, no, it's made up. And now we have Taylor Swift and Celine Dion at the Grammys, and a fan fabricated tiff between two stars because one was too caught up in her own moment to recognize the other legend that was behind her. Who the hell cares? And at what point do we get tired of stuff that is made up on uh, on social media that isn't true? Let's bring in our good buddy, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. She's here now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Well, I am, but what do you really think, Scott? What, like, honestly, at, at what point? It's not made up. You're wrong. You're wrong. Okay, tell me. Honestly, I don't usually come out and say you're wrong, but I really. I love it when I love it when you do, and I think that's the first time you've ever done so. Uh, done it, so I, I'm I'm happy. I'm glad you've done it. As I'm red faced, but why is this not true? Or why you tell well, me normally where I'm wrong? I don't come out, you know, guns a blazing, saying you're wrong, Scott, because you know. I'm a Canadian, and we have manners. And when they would have up on stage, and then there's a legend beside you, and that you take the trophy like she's your hot check girl, where you're getting your, or your coat check girl, getting your coat back, and don't acknowledge her. Miley Cyrus, oh, who got the first award of the show. First of all, I have to tell you, this was the best Grammy that I've ever won. And it was also the one a Grammy show that I didn't sit there and go, who, who, who? I knew everybody. I mean, it was really a stellar show. If you didn't watch it, you should try and find it when it reruns or whatever. But Miley Cyrus had the presence of mind. She got up on stage. She won for best song. And she was given the award by Mariah Carey. And she made a big deal of what it meant to be, to receive award an award from Mariah Carey. So if Miley Cyrus, who is, is as professional a performer as Taylor Swift, had the presence of mind to acknowledge the woman or the women who actually helped pave the way for careers such as theirs, then so should have Taylor Swift. And I was, and this is not a fabricated fan fiction type of story. Scott. Well, you she know, didn't intentionally snub her. It's not like she, uh, uh, it's not like it was a um, Kanye West, uh, Taylor Swift moment. Well, you know, I do. Well, that was Jay-Z's moment earlier in the show, but that's another story. But, you know, what happened was is that when Taylor did go up, she made a big deal about one of her other nominees, uh, Lana Del Rey, who I agree is a great singer. But that was not the time to sing the praises of a fellow nominee. The time was to look the other way to the woman who has not been able, who's had this debilitating disease, 
gets up and makes a big deal. Not only that, Scott, but during her presentation before she announced the award, she said, I remember, I remember, I think it was like Tina Turner and Sting who gave me my award. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the stage was set to create an acknowledgement. (laughs) I can't believe that, you know, Celine Dion, a a legend, gave me my award. Instead of wasting your precious airtime or stage time talking about Lana Del Rey. I don't know. Can the poor kid just have her moment? I know she's not a kid anymore, but can the, like, I mean, can she not just have her moment without praising the person who's just been praised? And is this a Canadian thing? If it was Tina Turner, would we give a damn now that she's yeah, passed? I, I, I would have because Tina Turner would have definitely known better than to, uh, to do that. Actually, you know, I think that there's, yes, you know, There is a school of thought where it's like Taylor's having her moment, let her have her moment. But, you know, I still think that there's a presence of mind situation here where you're everyone, millions of people are looking at the TV and there's suddenly a tsunami of collective opinion that falls on either side of the coin here, right? There's the opinion such as yours, which is like, come on, just let her have her moment. And then there's the other opinion, which is, um, hello, do you know who else is on the stage and just gave you the award? And Scott, that's the beauty of, you know, we often talk about how Twitter, also known as X, can be a, a cesspool of uh, thought, quote-unquote, journalism. But really, this was an organic conversation. Wait a sec, wait a sec. It's normally a cesspool, but now it's a, wait, it's gone from being a cesspool to organic because it involves no, Taylor no, Swift I and Celine Dion? normally a cesspool. This was a blip that was not being cesspoolian. But, you know, what, <laughs> you know, when you want to have, like, and, 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 you know, when you're looking for that immediate thought or that immediate opinion, whether you agree with it or not, these platforms do provide that type of spontaneous conversation. And I immediately, throughout the show, I'll be honest, I was on X slash Twitter to see what people thought about Joni Mitchell going up there and singing, to see what people thought about, you know, they Mm -hmm. lost their minds when Tracy Chapman um, also was up on stage with Luke Combs. So, you know, there is, as some people say that, you know, that these, these platforms do have a place to see what people are thinking at that moment. And at that moment, people either fell on either side of the coin. I love the term cesspoolian. I just made it up, Scott, and it's for you. <laughs> cesspoolian or organic. I don't know. All right. Um, I understand where you're coming from. And you feel free to call me out anytime you want. Oh, gee. <laughs> okay, now that I have permission. Yeah, that's right. And we'll probably give you a call sometime next year. No, I'm just kidding. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert. Always fun, Alyssa. Thanks for the time. Be well. And thanks for having me on, Scott. Yesterday, we were covering the news conference. London police, uh, actually, the chief came up and, and apologized for the delay in the World Junior sexual assault case and that it had taken so long to get from, uh, until this point. Uh, and, of course, the questions are, why now? How do you interpret it? that? And what will the victim have to go through during this trial? What will be her perspective? What are her options? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Carla Edwards with us, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences with McMaster University and here now. Carla, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Thanks very much. Uh, it's sort of spring-like here, so can't complain, and it's yeah. uh, nice to be here talking about this. I hear you all the way around here. Are you surprised that that we actually heard an apology from the police chief for the delay in this getting to where it is now? I'm I'm partially surprised. I, I think uh, the, the apology speaks to the chief's humanism. I think this is his way of communicating that truly he feels compassion for the victim uh, of this case and. Uh, certainly would have preferred it to have gone differently. Beyond that, I mean, the it's hard to know what the apology is for, you know, the length of time, um, what the person has gone through. There's so many different things that uh, an apology could extend to, but certainly the words indicate that he apologizes for how long it has taken. Um, so I, I'm kind of glad he extended that. Um, we've heard a lot about the players. We haven't heard a lot about the victim. Obviously, there's privacy issues there. But give a little insight from that side of this case. What what, what is she going to have to go through during this? Well, I think it's clear, certainly on any social media site you look at, that anything like this where there's a headline about uh, you know a sexual trauma that somebody has experienced, whether it's domestic violence or sport-related, a safe sport issue, it really affects anybody and everybody who has ever been touched by any sort of uh, trauma or assault or abuse in sport. Uh, We see a lot of uh, organizations out there who have banded together with folks who have been survivors or victims. Uh, And and I can, uh, I can attest to the various patients that I have supported over the years that every time there's a headline, it reawakens the trauma in everybody who has been touched by it along the way. So it's not just the the victim in this case that is certainly going to experience waves of stirring up of memories and feelings uh, about this. People are going to be talking to her, people who know who it is and what she's been through will be reaching out to her, and, you know, stirring it up and reminding her, offering support, but still stirring it up. And anybody who has experienced any sort of thing like this will also be hearing from their support saying, how do you feel about this? What do you think about this? And they'll be going through it themselves as well. I think one thing that really spoke to me about the news conference yesterday was, you know, Chief Truong referred to the person in this case as the victim. And and there was a bit of discussion about this on social media, because in the trauma-informed space, typically these days, you would refer to these folks as survivors. But I think the, the fact that this person prefers and indicated that this is how she prefers to be described speaks to me in that in her mental space and I've never spoken to her so I can't speak directly of course but I would interpret this as meaning there's still a lot that's unresolved here there still hasn't been an opportunity to uh, you know take the next steps uh, resolution you know uh, really addressing the issues so she's still sort of in the victim space versus the survivor space. And uh, so I, I think there's still a lot that she's mm. going to have to go through. Obviously, the courage and, and, and strength that's needed to do something like this, from what I understand, she is supportive of these charges moving forward. What if she wasn't? How would this, what would her options be? I think that's challenging. And, and you know, we don't fully know the backstory of, of you know, was she consulted on this? And I think in, in criminal cases, mm. sometimes it takes on a life of its own. And when there's enough evidence yeah. or potentially enough evidence to bring charges, then certainly in any assault or violence cases, it's actually taken out of the, the victim or survivor's hands to determine whether or not charges are brought forward. So um, I, I hope she has a lot of support in this. Um, I hope that, you know, this may be viewed as an opportunity for her to walk alongside of this and receive support and hopefully bring some resolution to this, at least some acknowledgement and recognition. I think that in the public 
people are confused as to why is this happening now? Is she just reporting this now? But we know that that's not the case. Right. Um, so hopefully, again, that she's getting enough support as this goes forward. In regard to that support, does she have options here or is she just viewed as another cog in the wheel of justice? Because, again, she's already been through this once. Yeah, that's the challenging part about, you know, reporting these types of things. And which is the reason why a lot of people don't report these things is because we know, you know, there's there's so many hoops that they have to jump through between the initial interview and then an investigation and then another investigation and then potentially court every single time this is revisited is another opportunity for re-traumatization and remembering what happened. And it is very, very difficult. And I imagine this is not going to be an easy process for her. Uh, Do you feel we're advancing with any of this, Carla? Uh, Are we moving the discussion along? It seems to be going quite slow. I think we're getting tangled up a little bit in terms of, what what is supposed to be referred to the justice system and what's supposed to be handled internally and what is supposed to be then shuffled off to an independent third party in sport. I don't think sport has figured that out yet. And I think the criminal justice system should be involved more. However, we know that uh, in, in current reporting mechanisms within the sport world, usually they're taken internally first and there's an opportunity there to direct things in a different way. Uh, but I think the sport will, well, maybe someone outside the sport world needs to identify uh, different portals of entry into the criminal justice system when it's indicated. We we remember when this was first announced way back when Hockey Canada lost some sponsorship, some key uh, a sponsorship. It seems that some of that or most of that has come back around. Is Hockey Canada doing enough? Is this message uh, being dealt with? I don't know that we've we've. I don't know that the current structure of Hockey Canada has had an opportunity to demonstrate its capacity to deal with these types of things yet. I know they've been through a lot of change in the last two years. Uh, I, I think the the reason for the loss of sponsorship and funding was because there was a, la- a lack of acknowledgement of the problems and a lack of, of uh, an intention to do anything about it. So sometimes it's money that moves that needle along. So I think that's what happened there. We have a new structure. We've got new, new people uh, but we have a lot of old culture that's still there. We have a lot of old infrastructure that is still there. Uh, so I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. What can we learn from this? Is there an opportunity here or is this just another cover-up? I, do, I don't think it's a cover-up anymore. I think it's out there now. Um, I hope yeah. this is an opportunity for uh, organizations to be able to, you know, at the, port, at the point of entry, if something were to happen, to be able to take victims and statements and complaints and reports more seriously, that there is uh, a mechanism earlier on in the process where a f- more fulsome investigation is done without interference. If, if that happened here, I'm not sure, but it's being suggested. But I think we need to take away the barriers. We need to reduce the obstacles. We need to have a straighter line between incident and intake to action. And uh, hopefully this uh, incident, although it's obviously caused some harm along the way, hopefully this is something that will move that needle along. How important is it that Hockey Canada gets this right this time? Oh, I think it's really important. Uh, You know, I think it's the bigger organizations that have the opportunity to take the lead here uh, because they're more in the spotlight and there's more eyes on them. And in fact, they have a bigger reach. So if Hockey Canada is to get this right at this point in time. And if it is to trickle down into a culture across the country, 
we as a country actually have an opportunity to be leaders in this. We see other countries really falling behind and struggling here. If we can get this right, I think we could be leaders. Dr. Carla Edwards with us, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences with McMaster University, commenting on the World Juniors sex assault case, which, again, is back in the news. Carla, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You as well. Well, if you're into race, then the Lapsovich family uh, certainly makes the ears peer, uh, perk as uh, uh, the Lapsovich family has been involved in racing in this area and across Canada for an awfully long time. Uh, first, second, third generation, I think we're up to now. Let's introduce you to Traden Lapsovich, uh, your NASCAR Pinty's Canadian champion from last year and here now. Traden, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, uh, obviously, as I've mentioned, a long list of Lapsovich's racing over the years. What's it like for you to get the big jump and, and head down and head down south? I mean, there's a lot of family history here, I, I'm sure, cheering you on. Yeah, I mean, this is really, as, as a family, this is what we've been working for for a really long time, uh, just to get that opportunity to, to move down south and, and really get a good shot at it. Um, like you said, third generation now, so... Um, you got a pretty deep family history and, uh, you know, I, I've always told people that racing is really a family sport. So we do it all together and, uh, during the summers. So it's a lot of fun and, uh, I'm really happy to, to get this opportunity and to, to have my family behind me as well. So how has it changed for the family, for you, uh, the days now and, and what you're doing with, you know, making preparations to head down south as opposed to, you know, a generation or two ago, how far has this come within the family? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's come a long way for sure. Um, you know, I think for, for my family itself, um, we've gotten a lot more involved in, in the technical aspects of the cars. Um, we've, uh, we've been working on our own cars in the shop now. We set up our own cars and then uh, we take them to the track as well. So it's, it's definitely a lot different. We're not just racing, uh, just 30 minutes away at Flambro or Sunset Speedway and Innisfil now. We're heading down south to, to Florida, New Smyrna, Pensacola, those kind of places. How difficult is it to get this opportunity? And obviously, Pinty's champion gets attention. Yeah, it, it's tough. It's uh, it's really hard because a lot of it has to do with funding. Um, you know, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't have that backing behind you, it's uh, it's really tough to make it happen. So I was really lucky enough to, to get the opportunity to do this with the support of Everham, which is a waste management company out of Montreal, and then also the Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship. So it's really cool to get this opportunity and to, to also do it with the Canadian company as well. I think that's, that's really special and, and a story in itself. Do you think you're going to be welcomed south of the border? It's pretty, it's pretty competitive. The elbows are up. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, it's, a, it's a whole different uh, atmosphere, really. Uh, I've been able to do a couple races in the States. Um, previously, I did, I did the Snowball Derby in, in Pensacola this December, and yeah. that was a really big one. So. You know, you show up to the track, and like I said, it's a it's a lot different of an atmosphere. But uh, you know, I think a lot of people overlook us before the race. But uh, once we get out there and we get on the track and, and they see our speed, I think there's there's a little bit of an intimidation factor. But uh, and th- that's always good as well. All right, you need the money, you need the equipment to get out there, you need the opportunity. Once you're out on the track with the good old boys, is it a different driving style? Is it different than ra- uh, racing in the NASCAR Pinty Series, for uh, for example? It's not really. Um, see, the the Pinty's races we are, uh, or the NASCAR Canada Series races, we're we're about most mostly oval races, um, a, f- a few road course races as well, and then we also do the dirt races. 
and they're all relatively long distance. We're doing about 250 to 300 laps. So, you know, the, the style of dri- driving is pretty similar in Canada as well to the States because they're all pretty extended races. So, you know, you, you really have to conserve your tires, your, your brakes, and pretty much the whole car, and you just got to be there at the end. So, the style of racing doesn't change. Um, I think, if anything, the big change is the new tracks. I'm going to be going to mm. a lot of tracks that I don't have a lot of experience at. Um, we do have the simulator, which, you know, it, it helps a little bit, but it's not, you know, a completely one-to-one uh, realism factor there. But uh, it helps. That's going to be the big adjustment. We're going to do some testing when we can and uh, just get comfortable for these tracks. So where are you living when you get down there? Where are you based out of? Uh, I'm going to be in Hickory, North Carolina. Right. So what is success for you this first year? Uh, you know, I, I I really think that we've put ourselves in a position that we can get out there and win races and, and hopefully go for a championship. I mean, that's uh, that's really the goal for us. I'm going to be paired up with the Chad Bryant racing team. Um, you know, maybe not so familiar um, with the Canadian fan base, but he's, he's won ARCA, uh, ARCA championships with a lot of great drivers. Um, he's worked with Chase Briscoe, a current Cup Series driver, Ty Majeski. So, um, I think I, the guy that I got calling the shots and, and building the race cars and putting them together is, is the right guy. Um, so I think we put ourselves in a good position to, to get out there and contend for wins in the championship right away. What's the ultimate goal here? What's the career goal? Um, I think this is a really a, a good start to a, a bright future. Um, this, this Cars Tour Late Model Stock Championship that I'm going to be competing in uh, this summer is almost at that next step up into the, the top three series, which would be like the, the NASCAR craft and truck series, Xfinity yeah. series and cup series. So um, long-term goals, that's, it's really where we'd like to be. Um, and I think we've put ourselves in a good spot here now. Are you a better driver than your, uh, than your dad, your uncle, all those people, what kind of advice do they give you? Uh, it depends who you ask, I'd say. <laughs> um, but, uh, family dinner is always interesting and entertaining. Okay. Yeah, especially if you're going out to someone else's house and trying to decide who's going to drive. I got that. I got that scene from Days of Thunder in my head here. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, no, my my family. You know, they've been they've been really supportive, and you know, everyone's every driver's got their their certain points where they're where they're better at and they're more skilled at. Um, especially when it comes down to setup of the car and, and overall driving style. So it's really nice to have all that experience in the family that I can really rely on and and get information from what I need to. Drayden Lapsovich with us, NASCAR Canada champion, heading down south to try it on down there. Trayden, good luck to you, and all the best to you and your family. We'll be watching. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, I'm not sure why the auto theft thing is such a big deal. My neighborhood hasn't been hit by anything like that. No car stolen here, so maybe we're just blowing all of this out of proportion, and my car's gone. Oh, no. 